0: This podcast is brought to you by Kandor, the exclusive community for business owners, entrepreneurs, and investors in the property sector. Collaborate, share, and grow with a network of highly skilled individuals focused on developing the cities of the future. For more information or to apply to the club, visit www.candor.org. That's Q-A-N-D-O-R. Candor, Collaborate, share, and grow.
1: was very good to me, and it gave me my career. But I think anybody who wants to ignore, bury their head to what is happening, both in the tech side and the generational demand that is out there, is foolhardy. This is, this is happening around us, so it needs to be embraced.
0: From Ackroyd Lowry, I'm Oliver Lowry, and this is Urban Forecast the show where I talk to the people defining the future of our cities. We discuss their background, what drives them, and the insights they've learned along the way. This is a show for investors, developers, planners and consultants, and anyone else interested in how we will live, work and play in the cities of the future, and what that means for the property market today. I met my guest today at a breakfast Ackroyd Lowry hosted, focused on the effect that the new London plan would have on the property market. Rob was there representing Land Aid, a charity that Ackroyd Lowry support in their aim of ending youth homelessness. Rob's vice chairman of Land Aid, and his passion for getting the property sector to focus on the problem of the housing crisis, is apparent as soon as you speak to him. What's also clear is that Rob's completely unique in the industry. He worked at GVA for over 30 years, building into a global agency – And when he left in 2016, he could have chosen to retire. He already had a hugely successful career, characterised by embracing technology, change and growth. However, Rob chose instead to become somewhat of a disruptor. He's taken on multiple non-exec roles at companies that are generally using technology to transform the property sector. And in most instances, that transformation includes opening up the club to more of the population. In this interview, we cover Rob's career at GVA, his views on the property industry and the club, and his vision of how this is going to change in the future and what this means for investors and the market at large.
1: The business itself started in the Midlands. It was a successful business in the Midlands. In the 80s, it was uh, quite dominant but had no real London presence. And I moved down in the mid-80s to work with a small group of people and during the 80s, uh, late 80s, there was the tech revolution in the financial markets that was huge at the time. And we served that basically in terms of the growth and did many mergers in the early 90s with now long, probably dependent on the age of your audience, uh, forgotten names like J.R. Eve, which was a very big planning business, Vigas, which was an established business, And it continued to grow until 2007, which was the global financial crisis. And we took private equity at that point in time and sold 25% of the business. And unfortunately for everybody, not just the private equity, which was from Lloyd's Development Capital, but we went into the global financial crisis and we come up to the current time where GVA have now moved out of private equity into a more certain regime of having a long-term investor. So when I left, the turnover was uh, around £150, £160 million. Pounds, and we employed 1,500 people in the UK and about the same number in Europe. And we were part of GVA Worldwide.
0: What, what do you think, if you could look back, was there, are there any decisions that you would have made differently that would have made a real impact? Some of those deals that you were doing at GVA, anything that, where you could have missed out on an opportunity that you would have uh, otherwise taken?
1: I probably wouldn't have been as debt adverse at the beginning of the 2000s. So I loved the idea of operating without debt. So that magic period in my career, and there have been three or four immediately post-recession, whereby it was wise to be braver and gear up and do more corporate activity. And one of those period was, let's say, 2002 to 2006. The trouble is you never get the timing right. Yeah, it's easy to say that afterwards, isn't it? (laughs) And, uh, you know, I was forced into a debt position because we did a deal with a private equity house. And again, I think those people that know me know that I don't think private equity is the right funding for a service industry. And I know that is can be debated, and et cetera, et cetera. But I believe that services about offering advice and offering advice should be about not being constrained to hit P&L targets. So it's a fantastic career. What's interesting in being here and doing the things that I'm now doing is um, some of the experiences from that and the changes that are going on in the market, which I suspect, Oliver, is probably the core of, you know, this discussion. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And, well, on that, what do you see as the main trend that you think for the next five, ten years is going to affect the market? Bearing in mind my whole career has been about money
1: and development and how developments happen. It is being able to uh, distill the investment opportunities in big mixed-use investments to allow the investor community, where the money is coming from, to actually get comfortable with it. And that's a really simple thing to say, but um, if development is really as hard as I perceive it to be, and yes, particularly with a focus on London, then there is a lot of work to be put in. My concern is that where we sit at the moment in terms of the property cycle, and a lot of people forget that property does have a cycle, is that we're going into a very challenged 2019. And I don't think that is just about Brexit. A lot of the headlines and media that you get is you know, Brexit, nobody's going to do anything because of Brexit. But there's a multitude of factors. It's Brexit. It's what the political colour is going to be in terms of the ruling parties. It's how those units and local administration can deal with development and planning. Because unless you can get clarity in that regard, the funds won't follow.
0: Absolutely. And I think we found that the local authorities are really the kingmakers in this uh, scenario rather than, I think... You know, the, the perception of the property market is being affected by macro political Corbyn or Tories and hard Brexit or soft Brexit. In reality, the boroughs that, where developers are investing are the boroughs that have set out quite clearly what the opportunities are. So we're working with Waltham Forest and they're just fantastic. Yeah. You know, they're like, you know, Labour borough with a strong leader who's, um, you know, Claire Coghill there is is relatively sure of her position. Yeah. She's well backed and get somewhere with their MP. And I think all of those factors mean that they've got a lot of certainty in the borough. And they're saying to developers, look, here are our terms. You know, these are the opportunity areas. We want 40% affordable minimum with a borough of culture. We're, you know, like they want all the stuff, but they're at least allowing people certainty over what needs to be delivered. And I think that from a developer's point of view, that can get your investors on side. I think that's
1: totally right. I think the, and again, during, just as another parallel, and some of the big schemes, uh, funding schemes that I was involved with, but taking your point, which is a strong leadership aspect, if you look at Manchester, when Sahar Bernstein was there, it was a joy to go to that city, because basically you may not like everything he and his executive officers said, but you knew exactly where you stood, and you got things done, and I think that's why it's exactly right You go to other towns, which is probably unfair to name here, and you knew it was going to be a complete nightmare.
0: So we were talking about your role before we started recording at the London Real Estate Exchange. Yeah. And in terms of funding mixed-use developments, if that's the, the trend that you see is making these big schemes happen, yeah. could you explain a little bit about what your role is there and how you see that changing? Oh. Sure. So
1: London Real Estate Exchange, uh, the trading name is IPSX, International Property Securities Exchange. And as we're talking about my career in terms of what I've seen. One of the other hats that I wear and still very uh, big supporter of is a thing called the Investment Property Forum. And I will get to the point on IPSX, but many of your listeners may have thought over the years about securitization. IPF certainly did, Investment Property Forum. And it's been tried many, many times. The difference with the IPSX is that this will be the first public market, i.e. a stock exchange, which is fully regulated by the FCA and supported by the Treasury, to offer shares to the public in single assets. And single assets could be large mixed-use developments, dependent on where they are. And just coming back to how we started in terms of the difficulty of being a developer, and indeed referencing Argent at King's Cross... To do a scheme of that sort of nature, and again, if uh, Roger Madeline or David Partridge were here, they would give me the correct numbers, but it must have been 15 to 20 years in terms of the original site acquisition to getting to King's Cross today. And my take on it is that from the investment community point of view, and the investment community being the large several in wealth funds, and, and King's Cross is now largely owned by Australian Super, which is the, the, one of the main pension funds from Australia, is that it is very, very hard, bearing in mind the trend to mixed use, to simply look at the existing investment structure. It exists, it's there, uh, the providers are there, people will have foresight to make huge bets on it. But I think it is incredibly restrictive. So if you come back to the IPSX and say, you can actually increase the investor universe by offering public securities a share in a mixed-use developer, on a public exchange that is fully regulated, you can take the dynamic which we've all seen of crowdfunding but put it into a public environment with all the checks and balances that go with it. So you, could ha- you can envisage, especially for large mixed-use, where there is, you know, the investment works and there's occupier demand which is fundamental to all of this, you could actually see public owning shares in their own mixed-use communities by listing specific developments.
0: And would it be um, open-ended or closed-ended? I mean, would there be a rush to the door if you saw, you know, a headwind coming of a recession?
1: So it would be open-ended because basically you create to list on the exchange a single or a special purpose vehicle. So it would be there, so it would be remaining and listed on the exchange. And people, and certainly as the exchange has developed, because where we are at the moment is that we're just waiting for the FCA recognized investment exchange license, which is any week now, basically, and certainly before the end of 2018. But basically, where we are at the moment is, yeah, there could be a rush. But if you look at the wider investor community, the retail investor, actually, he hasn't had a lot of opportunity investing in these. So, He's probably getting one, or he or she is getting one, if they're lucky, 2% in their national savings bonds or whatever. But the retail investor has been squeezed out over the last 30 years from the main public markets. So it's a source of capital. It's not the only source of capital because there will be the sovereign wealth fund, pension funds, etc. But it's something that will offer an option on the right sort of development – To the real estate community, yeah, and
0: with more security than you would get from crowdfunding. Where I think some of the security that they've got is probably wouldn't stand up to much scrutiny or testing.
1: Exactly. So, and the reason why it's taken five years for the IPSX to get a recognised investment exchange licence is because of the retail investor protections that are put in place by the regulator which in this case is the
0: FCA. So let's hope it happens in time for Wembley, because I think a publicly owned Wembley would be fantastic. A publicly owned Wembley would be great, and I think...
1: I suppose one can be controversial.
0: That would be an amazing flagship Uh, for you guys to to get.
1: It would be fantastic if the council at Wembley, but how, and being mildly controversial, because property people generally aren't, but how we could think of selling our national football stadium, and I don't know Mr Khan at all, I'm sure he's a very nice guy, to a private individual or private company would be sacrilege and the board should be changed. And they were so serious about it, I just cannot believe the Football Supporters Federation would even countenance. So whether you use IPSX or not, or a public exchange or not, it is an option to give um, a structure to allow that to happen.
0: This show is brought to you by Ackroyd Lowry. Ackroyd Lowry are award-winning architects specialising in creating inspiring places to live, work and play. Ackroyd Lowry set the trends that the industry follows and were the first company to use virtual reality sign-off on all their projects. This puts their client at the heart of the design process and people at the heart of their regeneration schemes. If you're interested in building inspiring places to live, work and play and want the latest insights into planning, construction and market trends, then visit www.acroydlowry.com. Aykroyd Lowry, Building an Inspiring World. And uh, I think that comes on to talking about one of your other roles in Coyote. Yeah, data. Yeah, data, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, I think that, I mean, for us, we're just fascinated by how backward the property sector is in its regard to data. Mm. Every other industry in the world, bar a few, analyses data and makes decisions based on that. And the property sector still is a finger in the air, I think. And, uh, you know, if, if consultation with planning uh, authorities, that's one way to de-risk it. But for us, there's a whole bit which is to do with connecting up people that want to buy with people that are developing. That doesn't seem to be happening at the moment. Yeah, I think there's a build it and they will come attitude, mm. which maybe is informed by the London plan being quite restrictive. All the developments we work on, the resi ones. They're just kind of a bit samey in terms of what they're offering. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if you were to try and get data about what people actually want, you might be able to make a case to the GLA that people want smaller things or they want things where all the bedrooms are the same because they want to share it with their friends. Or, yeah. you know, like, and there doesn't yeah. seem to be this ability for the market to adapt to choice. So,
1: as you say, one of my non-exec roles is as chairman of a business called Coyote. It deals with data and it deals with data from a point of reporting and manage portfolios. I think this discussion is much wider than that in terms of the – what do we – loosely call it now the fourth industrial revolution that we're living through and some of the points that you make in terms of making convincing arguments is absolutely right so going back to my early career where i was at there was that nobody would share data at all it wasn't a common aspect to make decisions and this is a huge subject i've sat on panels and listened to pitches as an angel investor on how how data is used in the construction process, how demand and supply is dealt with, how it is captured. And I, I think the big issue that we've got, and I'm sure of this, is that with good data ideas, people think it is such a blindingly obvious idea, it's going to be adopted quickly. And it's not. What I've learned over the last two years in the data field that I've been exposed to is that it takes a huge amount of time to change the establishment. It's reinforced my view that real estate is a club. So although I don't think it's quite finger in the air, as you suggest, because there, are, you know, we have moved on, we've only moved on at a particular pace and we haven't seen anything yet. I know we're living, living through this fourth industrial revolution and the winners, if they can be funded... And that's going to be the big catch-22 because a lot of these data businesses burn money very quickly and don't know how to monetize their project. Solution, I think we're heading into a world where data will be free and the businesses created against that free data will be the ones that add value to it. Very simple statement, Ben.
0: I mean, it's very interesting. uh, Our non-exec is from a tech background and and we're constantly going oh but Mads can't we do this build this tool that'll do this and he's like guys most building projects that you start you end up with a building right you put the foundations in you don't usually just stop halfway through with tech it's the opposite (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he it's said true. "He said 70% of projects that you start, you build the foundations, you get halfway up and you go, God, this is too hard. <laughs> and, so, and that's that's the limiting factor. I think the tech is that, uh, you know, such a small proportion of the companies that you start Absolutely. end up yeah. making any impact. But, you know, we're still very keen and we're hoping to build some tools that actually do start connecting s- developers with sellers uh, yeah. and trying to make a richer... Dataset makes it sound boring, but like a brief for a developer should be informed by what people want yeah. rather than the London plan and what they did last time. And so, well,
1: we're... I have to say, one of the most uplifting experience that I've had in the last month, and it gave me real hope, was that I sat at a, um, a CMS conference and listened to Martha Lane Fox. Martha Lane Fox, twenty years ago, maybe twenty-five years ago, started LastMinute. dot com with Brent Huberman. And why it was so uplifting was that she has a role with government and, and it's Baroness Lane, she's a House of Lords. But it was so refreshing to somebody who absolutely understood stood data and tech to be in government and actually giving advice. That is the way it's going. This is the generational. She's still young, 45, 46, whatever she is, but at least she's embracing it at the very centre of way things are happening. I think it's brilliant.
0: My observation from what you've been describing, I think, is that you're in the the pursuits that you've done since GVA, trying to sort of, and in fact maybe at GVA, end the idea of property as a club, Mm. as a sort of, you know, small club for those who are in the know. So the use of data, that sort of expands the opportunity for people to understand it. And then the use of trying to float assets to allow more people into the market. Is Is that a conscious thing or is that just... No, I think it's a very conscious thing. I mean,
1: again, the club was very good to me and it gave me my career. But I think anybody who wants to ignore, bury their head to what is happening, both in the tech side and the generational demand that is out there is foolhardy. This is... This is happening around us, so it needs to be embraced. in, it's in music's in, my ears. Yeah, That's well... <laughs> I, know, I mean, two years ago, everybody... Uh, and again, you know, I'm a past IPF chairman. But the fact of the matter is, which, which his whole ethos is to educate uh, a wider public on investing in real estate. Great. But at all the times, we've never really had a vehicle to do it. And therefore, if you go into any of the financial markets you will be told that we are an alternative. We're not mainstream. We're an altern- We're regarded as an alternative. And I think the best example of that is that, give or take a billion, today the FTSE, the main London Stock Exchange, is valued at 2.7 trillion. Uh, too many noughts for me to tell you about. But the REIT market today is valued at 55 billion. It is less than 2% of the main market REITs have not worked as they should, Hmm. period. And when Ruth Kelly brought them in to provide predominantly, and everybody seems to have forgotten the white paper, that it was to provide money for residential. And what's happened is that the REIT market has used the wrappers of tax and the commercial market. And that's fine. It's perfectly legitimate. But the original ethos... Of creating public involvement was never fulfilled, mm. and I think the IPSX will allow that to happen. I
0: hope so, because otherwise it is sort of being met by. I mean, the demand for crowdfunding shows that there is interest in people sure. getting involved, and everybody watches, you know, yeah. homes under the hammer and thinks they're a, yeah. an investor, and like there is, there's an appetite 100%. for it. And I think it, you know, actually, at scale with better regulation that will be mm. it could have much more impact and it's very exciting so yeah i mean it, it sort of brings us on to uh, homelessness and your role at land aid yeah. you want to talk a little bit about certainly i mean so land aid itself land aid's been
1: around for a hell of a long time 1986 it was that evolution of band-aid live aid whatever and it was the real estate the club coming together and saying you know we should do our bit on this and and people uh in my case walked around battersea park most people ran to raise money and we raised a few hundred thousand pounds and i think that was really good um it's been transformational in the last 10 years under the leadership of a chap called mike slade who until recently ran helical bar a developer but a huge man with big heart great uh, giving But land aid got a focus five years ago about homelessness. 86,000 young people on the streets throughout the United Kingdom. You only have to walk around this. Uh, An associated problem is sofa surfing. And what land aid is about is trying to bring a whole sector together and actually say, this is socially not only unjust, but a disgrace to our country. And um, if we, from a real estate point of view, and that's not just about giving money, can yes, give money, but if we can come together to provide shelter to that disadvantaged group, then this is our future, talking about generational change. If you haven't got a house, you can't get a job. It's as simple as that. And if you're on the streets and you're about as low as you can be. And again, I say it's not just about giving money. So we have a big pro bono side now. So last year we raised £3 million, We have £2 million on top of that pro bono. So this is growing and people are engaging. We have 300 ambassadors promoting land aid. And again, it's this sector coming together. And and just a a quick example. Um, There's a business uh, called Cubex, which is Palmer Capital have an investment in Bristol. And I can't remember the exact number of vacant accommodation houses that Bristol local authority have in their portfolio but they sit there empty and what Cubex did was they said to their sector under the leadership of a chap called Gavin Bridge and said look, um, you've got an empty house at Sir Marvin Rees the Mayor give us some of these houses and we pro bono will refurbish them for a 10 year period bringing architects, cost consultants, contractors together and they have created the East Street Muse." And if you ever wanted to be inspired to see what the sector working together can do, using skills as well as money, E Street News is our poster child, if you will. And that's what we want to do for Land Aid in Mm. its next iteration.
0: We'd love to do a project like that in London, so yeah. I think we'll be talking to Tom and trying to find sites where we can actually make a difference. Fantastic, and doing some hands-on you know, stuff. Thank
1: you for your support. It's uh, I don't know, it's just inspirational in terms of saying it,
0: and it really does bring people together. So where do you think, I and mean, these are sort of general questions, what's next? Are we going to have a hard Brexit? Are we going to have a soft Brexit? Brexit. And what impact is that going to have on the property market? So my prediction is
1: more actually about the property cycle and what I see 1920 and how we started in terms of the combination of factors leading to a slowdown of the markets. Do you not think
0: we were mid-cycle anyway?
1: We were late-cycle anyway, but I think what's going to happen is that the effects of whatever the political establishment is or the Brexit outcome hard software that it may be, And bearing in mind I'm, at my core, an investment advisor, an investment broker, if you will, my glass is always half full. And my take on it is that the intellect and ingenuity of the British people will, with whatever hand they're dealt, will always get us out of this. I absolutely 100% believe it. I've seen it happen in the three recessions that I've seen. And every time it presents opportunities to allow things to come forward.
0: So if you were advising people on their investment, would you say property's a good thing to be investing in at the moment in the current climate? So
1: property people in my peer group that was at GVA would say that property is now overpriced. I think that is an oversimplification because if you were only in the United Kingdom dealing with sterling, that is right. But if you are in Asia or if you're in some of the other elements that are benefiting by the foreign exchange play, the fact that the UK has rule of law, it has language, it has etc. etc. et cetera, and you could see an FX play against good real estate, that's why you come to the United Kingdom. And I think that's what Brexit could result in. There's already, uh, you speak to anybody, a wall of capital out there Mm. looking for good opportunities. trouble is they're all looking for the same things, long leases, great tenants, etc. Is that capital going to be educated enough to do mixed-use developments, let's say? Does it have enough vision to allow that to happen? And that's where both local authorities and central government come in in terms of whether you use tax stimulants, whether you use uh, leadership, whether you use overriding leases from local authorities to help stimulate those sort of developments. If they are prepared to be that imaginative, and it's not that imaginative, because if you look backwards, they've all been used before, and I can remember them, great. But we have a chancellor that stands up and says, I'm not going to sign a new PFI deal, private finance initiative does he really mean that or does he mean actually we're not going to call it pfi but we are going to take it and i think you'll see more of that over the coming period
0: yeah absolutely yeah well rob thank you so much it was an absolute pleasure and thank you for your pleasure. time and, nice to uh, be here. yeah I, I hope we continue our conversation over many years great thank you very Thanks much a lot if you enjoyed the show then please subscribe and give us a review ideally a five-star one and uh, if you want to know more, please go to Acroydlowry.com or follow us on Twitter at Acroydlowry and Instagram with the same. This podcast supports Landaid, the property industry charity that brings together the sector to deliver life-changing projects for young people who really need it. Visit www.landaid.org to find out how you can help end youth homelessness.